Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined with my fellow Bond aficionados, remotely, of course, for another thrilling, tantalising episode of the Bond Daft Project. Film 21, Casino Royale, released in 2006, is this week's film and uh, was a gritty reboot of the franchise, the first official reboot, and... Fittingly, we are actually rebooting the podcast. Uh, we're cutting out all the CG and uh, kind of dialing things back a little, you know, a bit more groundy, less commercialism. We've even cut the budget and also one of the members of the cast. We're only actually two Bond aficionados for this one. I welcome Steve McCall. A very good afternoon to you all. And Gordon Webster. <laughs> oh, you're keeping me on then, I. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we had to get rid of the, the chaff, uh, so thankfully Francis Murphy hasn't joined us for this, hopefully he got the memo, um, and so it'll just be us two, uh, us three, sorry, so, uh, <clears throat> oh, 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 that's, 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 well, that, was that you guys, was that, who was that, was that, oh, Fran, um, I didn't see any, I didn't see any memo. That's awkward. I didn't realise you were in the... Oh, that, that's... Thank you for referring to me as the chaff there. <laughs> well, now you're here, you might as, might as well join. Uh, Francis Murphy, uh, we'll find we'll find a spare budget, I think, for you there. Some expense. I'm actually, I'm actually so upset, I can't even say my usual introduction. I just can't say the words. Oh, well, let's... Uh, let's uh, and Francis Murphy... I don't know, my heart's not in it anymore, I can't see it. You <laughs> <laughs> can oh, make him edit if he wants. I know that yeah. he can edit the bit that's not required, make him do his own editing. Yeah, well, yeah. edit in another version of my intro. <laughs> <laughs> yo, yo, yo. <laughs> Self-competitor podcast. I mean, I know that it was a lot to ask for two packets of crisps and a crunchy from a salary, but I mean, there's no need to cut me. Uh, sorry, man, that- we can, if you want to agree, the crunchy alone, we can shake hands remotely, of course, on that. We'll have to have a sit down. You know, we'll have to have a sit down and discuss it. That sounds very gangster like. I'm not sure I want to do that. It's also so- social distancing rules apply here. Well, we could be two <laughs> metres apart, sit down. Fair enough. Okay. So, one one uh, packet of crisps and a crunchy. We need to get some union representation. They're not making Taz bars anymore. I thought <laughs> that was all we were getting. Oh, you know what? Taz, Taz bars are smaller, probably cheaper. We'll go for that then. One Taz bar, Fran. You okay with that? <laughs> and crisps. All right, we'll, we'll have to take this negotiation off mic. Uh, but for now, uh, let's let's move on. Let's quickly have an update. How are we all doing? Fran, now that you've uh, joined us, unwelcome, uh, of course, um, how, how are you doing? Well, I'm deeply upset. But apart from that, um, I have been... Uh, well, I haven't really been doing very much. I was playing a game called Galactic Civilizations 3 recently, uh, which is, a, as they call it, a 4X game, uh, which is basically turn-based strategy. So I've been messing around with that. Uh, apart from that, trying to get ready for a move in the home, obviously, in a couple of weeks' time. Also trying to get things sorted for work. So yeah, it's been good. Uh, it's been nice being in the house with my parents and sister and niece again. Um, she's been curiously kind of peering through the door now and again asking about the podcast today <laughs> so you may hear her at some stage well excellent uh, what's her thoughts on Bond is she a fan I actually have no idea I don't think she's probably even aware of James Bond because her mum doesn't really 
watch that. Yeah. And you know what it's like when you're seven or eight years old, you tend to watch what your parents are, are watching or what they what they want to show you. She doesn't, it's not the same as we used to be either. She doesn't, kids don't sit in front of the telly and watch whatever's on anymore. They're on their tablets and they're choosing what to watch. So I think she's completely unaware of it. But I will, I will show her all of the James Bond movies, all of the violence, all of the terrible things. And then I'll ask, <laughs> I'll ask her what she thinks of it. And then I'll be immediately reported to social services and taken away. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how the story ends. All right then. Steve McCall, how are you doing? I'm not bad at all, thank you very much. Uh, mostly, it's one of those weeks where I've been mostly at work, so I've had very little time to actually sit and relax, but I did get a chance to watch From Russia With Love a couple of days ago in my kind of mission to re-re-watch all the films that we've previously watched. I'd forgotten how much filler was in that film. It was, I mean, there was, in comparison to Doctor No, which kind of had me hooked the whole way through, things like that, that whole gypsy camp scene, even after yeah. the second time watching it, I still don't get the necessity of that whatsoever, um, which was a bit of a shame. But it was enjoyable to go back and rewatch it and make new notes and reevaluate my rating and stuff like that, which was interesting. What did you give that one? Did you give that a three or you gave it a three and a half? I think it was it was a solid three. I gave it again. Um, moving on from because I gave Doctor Noah three and then I gave this a three as well. Um, Doctor No is probably going to change. I'm not 100% sure from Russia is. Or if it is, there's a, there might be a chance of it going down. I don't know. I'm going to have to again watch more of the films and kind of reevaluate again. But it's interesting how perception changes after watching 20 of these films pretty much chronologically and in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Um, which kind of shows the value and interest of this project, really. But it's, so that was interesting. Uh, and beyond that, I haven't been doing a great deal. I've been kind of slowly coming out of lockdown. I walked into a shop that wasn't a supermarket this week, which was relatively hellish. But that is, um, big, that is a big, big step. It was, it was huge. It was weird. It was there was there was people, and it was a, It's almost it's a weird sort of claustrophobia now being out because there's I'm so unused to being surrounded by people, and suddenly with those big crowds, it's this bizarre thing of this doesn't feel right. So it's gonna it's it's incredible how much of a change this is and how much it's gonna take uh, getting used to. But yeah. it's a it's a slow process. But um yeah. yeah, it's been a relatively quiet week otherwise. Excellent. All right then. Gordon Webster, how are you doing? Yeah. All right. Uh, not too much to report. Again a bit of time off work this week, which is gonna be good. And, um, and at least, yeah, the restrictions have been lifted a bit, so might might get a nice we drive into the country. Got a couple of um, important repairs done in the old automobile, so yeah, um, hopefully we'll get out out and about, get some country air this week. I watched the uh, I watched the documentary Everything or Nothing for the second time last night, and well, I watched most of it, and that that was quite good. I also I've listened to a bit of the and um, the audiobook version for that, another Bond novel, Colonel Sun, which mm. was written by a guy called Kingsley Amos. And I've been listening to gradually the, the novel of Moonraker by Christopher Wood as well. Uh, yeah, they're pretty good. I should probably, I never seem to just be able to narrow things down to just one thing. I'm always watching or listening to or reading bits of things. I need to really decide what I want to do. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. it's it's good. And yeah, it's still a couple, we're still watching other movies, which we'll, 
we'll go into maybe at a later date. Yeah, things are good. Did yeah. you have any dreams, Gordon? Oh yeah, I mean, exactly yeah. that. <laughs> oh yeah, still been dreaming. Yeah, been, it, it's been more like medleys of loads of weird things put together rather than just one big long weird thing that the dreams usually are. Like last night, I saw a mini dream about being in some swimming pool eating pizza. I don't know where it was, or and like other people were in another room <laughs> next to it, like just having dinner or something like that. And then and the other one, I, this is a, this is a, a recurring have of wherever I, I live. It's there's always this hidden part like of I kept imagining there was this hidden part of my flat that I'd forgotten about. There are, there are these other rooms. It was like my flat was twice as big as it really was, but there were these like spare bedrooms and a spare living room that just weren't getting used. And I, I thought, hang on, I forgot that part of my flat even exists. Why don't? And then I discovered um, this big sort of storeroom as well. I didn't realize it was in my like my the coast where I stay. Yeah, it was uh, weird, weird stuff. Yeah, still what, having what, the weird dreams. What was in the storeroom? It was, see, I I was going to mention this in the next podcast. Maybe I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark last night. And remember that the end, it's like Area 51 or something. Uh-huh. Where the, the Ark gets put at the end of the film and all the, just <clears throat> all these artifacts that you're meant to imagine are in, in storage. It was just like that, but it was part of my flat. It just didn't make any sense at all. We'll need to get a, a new a sort of little sequence of music that plays and we introduce the Gordon's Mad Dream. <laughs> what you could have actually is kind of spooky music in the background when Gordon's telling us a dream. So it's yeah, like, yeah. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> you know, what I'd like to do actually. Fran, you know, we, you know we're going to have to work on this after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I was thinking actually after getting a hold of Larry Nemechek, it got me thinking about different people and you know with this whole dream thing wouldn't it be interesting to get a hold of someone who's like a dream interpreter and have have a big discussion about dreams with, with like, like about all of the dreams we have but also trying to figure out the psychology of gordon's dreams like what is the subconscious trying to say yeah you know is it that the storeroom is some secret part of your mind that has all these things that you've put away like yeah. is it possible that if you were to access that you could have some kind of like superhuman abilities you know that you don't know about i just yeah. like i've been dreaming more the last couple of weeks as well i don't know something something's going on it's like your brain is trying to help create content for the podcast yeah i know i think it's the lockdowns get something to do with it i think it's great i love it it's actually my it's one of my favorite kind of little sequences that we have here uh always eager to find out what the next dream is yeah it's it's re- it's replaced the new bond is dated we'll need to get definitely get the new the intro for it gordon streaming yeah, gordon streaming. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's pressure on me now like see before i go to sleep at night i'm uh reminding my head right try and remember your dream and then report about it on the next podcast yeah well let's not put pressure on it then it's uh it's a soothe, soothing environment if yeah let it flow i'm sure there will oh. be some even sillier material next time yep i'm glad i put it in uh because i was it was right on the cutting room floor um for that podcast because uh i felt it was it was i even say it in the podcast it's meant to be half an hour max 45 minutes later uh there's a, a four minute dream sequence discussion um but I, I thought it was so funny that i was like i need to tack it on at the end um so yeah Alrighty, uh, myself, I have been good as usual, uh, mostly editing podcasts this week, that was a good chunk on Friday, was up till about half two, editing two back to back, um, 
and the backlog is nearly there although of course we're going to create a further one with this one unfortunately um but yeah that's been fun and also i have been watching some films i i've watched i'll speak about them on our next week's sh- or yeah next week's show the weekly one the bite-sized one um but i've watched uh jurassic park last night one of my all-time favorite films and again it's still up there it is absolutely phenomenal and uh yeah such a great great fun revisiting that and i also watched uh well i'll keep it for the next one uh and a film that just came out last year it's on disney plus now i'll leave it at that all right then uh let's move on as we're 15 minutes in and we haven't really discussed the film we're about to talk about casino royale released in 2006 this was of course the reboot film that's kind of started a kind of new timeline in the bond franchise daniel craig is the new bond martin campbell directed returning after the success of goldeneye um this was uh, Eon Productions really trying to go in a different uh, a different direction after the I would say critically disappointed uh, die, die Another Day commercially that was still a success but I think everyone realised that film went too far with the CG with the silly humour and this was the time to dial it back inspired of course I would uh, and as um, I think they did credit the, the the inspiration really came from Nolan and Batman Begins the year before the gritty reboot of that series which again a similar a sort of parallel story I suppose you could say with the Batman and Robin film that was released in 1997 that put the Batman franchise in on the shelf for about eight years I think um, because it was so panned for its silliness Dying All Day isn't quite as bad as that but you could see the the comparison definitely Um, I've read the book for this one this is the only one I've read the book for Um, and I understand that this film follows quite a lot of this very close adaptation of the book probably been upgraded for the sort of 2006 standards that you'd expect um gordon you want to take it take it from there set us up for this one yeah i'll try my best with this because i'm not as great with the craig films and i think i've seen casino about maybe five or six times so until this out of all the films we watched so far this will be the one i've seen the least oh wow yeah, and I mean, to, for background, really, yeah, like you were saying there, Stephen, after Die Another Day, where do you go from that? Invisible cars, CGI, kite gliding across a, an icy waters. Where do you go from there? And actually, in Everything or Nothing, the documentary, I think it was either Michael Wilson or Barbara Broccoli said, what what you do when you're you've kind of get writer's block and you don't know where you're going to go with the next film? What you always do is go back to Fleming, go back to the novels, and I think for decades I think they wanted to the Bond Eon Productions wanted to do a film version of Casino Royale, and apart from the we've got to remember, of course, there was a the the sort of nineteen sixty seven parody film Casino Royale. But apart from that, there wasn't a proper film, but they always wanted to do it. One of the problems, I think, is, um, Steve, you've got the upper hand over me in that you've read the book, and I've not actually read the book, although I've maybe read bits, but I know quite a bit about it. But I think it's based in all, like, largely actually in a casino for the, you know, for the best part of the book. So how do you bring that into cinematic form? And I think actually also the whole Kevin McClory thing was still reading its ugly head, even the early 2000s. 
after after obviously McCory had um, he was still saying that Bond was his creation, and he'd obviously made never seen ever again. He kept even after the millennium was threatening to do his own new Bond film, and somehow it wasn't till about um, it must have been shortly after the millennium that. Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson actually got screen rights finally to do Casino Royale on the big screen. Yeah. And long awaited, going back to Fleming, you know, a reboot. This was this was the probably the right sort of film to get back to basics. And I mean, to to go over it quite swiftly, really, James Bond's meant to this is a completely new universe, you know, Doctor No up to Dying on a Day. We're looking at pretty much the same character. Um you know, a, a continuation straight through. Now we're starting right again. James Bond's just been given his license to kill. He's a sort of an experienced agent, and he, he's assigned really to um, to bankrupt a criminal called Le Chiffre, who is financing terrorists. And he's using after losing a large amount of money that he owes to, I think it's a, a Ugandan um, sort of militant leader. He's trying to recoup the money that he's laundering for this this militant leader through a high stakes casino game and Bond's sent to to recoup the money. Uh, no, sorry, to stop him recouping the money, basically to bankrupt the guy and, and find out more about his plan. And there's a um a, a, a treasury agent uh played by Eva Green, um who why well, do I not know I Vesper Lind is um is the treasury agent. Daniel Craig James Bond film number one, um, Mad Mickelson is it Mad Mad Mc Mad Mickelson plays Le Chiffre and Mister White played by Jesper Christensen and Le Chiffre is kind of like he's like a middleman sort of villain in this if you like then so um, he's not it's kind of like the whole Spectre thing where when Bond was in the first couple of films the villains Bond was up against they were just almost a middleman working for Spectre. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I'm not so great on the films, but once we get to this point, like I said, and I think partly as well, we were, 2006 was, that was the first year that I'd turned 18 and just my focus started to move away from Bond and obviously other things, you know, past the legal drinking age and, uh, you know, life changed a bit. And I, I, I wasn't, I'd take my eye off Bond a bit for a while. That I think first year that me and Mr. McCall started, um, you know, our, are parting in the student days as well so a really good year for me and i don't actually think i saw this one in the cinema at the time do you know what do you know what's interesting actually when you mentioned uh pairing it back it's uh, there's this idea that a good movie has to be especially you know as we've got you know gone into more of the modern era a good movie has to be uh huge lots of different places lots of whatever but you know, there's there's fantastic movies out there that effectively take place in just one room. If you look at Twelve Angry Men, that came out in the fifties. That's basically set, uh, you know, in in a room where a jury's trying to decide what to do with a a, mm. a a person who's on trial, and it's set entirely in one room, the entire film. But it's compelling. It's uh, you don't get much more pared back than that. But it's amazing what the what they were able to do with that. Like, you know, I was gripped by that film and. I feel like Casino Royale has a, a, an element of that in the sense that a lot of it is set in the the poker game, in the casino, but it's the it's it's skilled writing and skilled direction and acting that that can pull out intrigue from that. And bear in mind how we live our lives, you know, we're not crushed by complete boredom in our own lives. 
you can spend eight hours in work, but lots of different things happen. They're intriguing. There's things, you know, I think that's really yeah. picked up quite well in this film. Yeah, it's about the stakes. You can make the stakes huge for a character where in the grand scheme of things might not be that important, but if you can write really well, those stakes can be just as big as the typical uh, world-dominating, um, world-ending yeah. sort of narrative that you expect from the Bond films. And that's, I think that's the the misconception is that the stakes have to always be bigger, but usually they're not. Well, you're a, you're a big fan. You were a big fan of The Office, weren't you? The Office UK, Steve. You loved that. Yeah, yeah. And that was. You know, the stakes there really were, you know, there was that relationship between two of the members of the office, wasn't there? But that that mundane environment, that day-to-day stuff, that really came through, didn't it? Because that mattered to them. Yeah. It no, seemed definitely. huge, you know? Yep. Yep. Uh, right. We're going to, this is obviously going on a bit, but I want to cover a couple more things before we end the preamble. Obviously, the writing team is still the same writing team. Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, they also got Paul Haggis uh, in to, to help with this one. But the main two, Purvis and Wade, are still obviously going. Um, and David Arnold's returned for the soundtrack as well. So, yeah, you know, and of course it was produced by Michael G. Wilson, Barbara Broccoli. And it was Stuart uh, Baird, don't forget. Oh, Stuart Baird, Fran. And that guy, star. there was that guy, Daniel Craig, I think, oh, was yeah. part of the crew, the cast for this film as well. Thank <laughs> you. That's my, my fault. I was, I was going to say, um, sorry, I went a bit of a ramble earlier, but I oh, think um, maybe they thought at the time it made sense. To, to go with that, uh, a new actor for Bond. And I think Brosnan was quite saddened to... Um, he. I mean, the early the early writing would have involved him coming back for, uh, for a fifth film, and I think he was expecting that. And he said in that documentary about how saddened he was that um, Wilson and Broccoli said they wanted to move in another direction. And we've got to remember, I mean, Daniel Craig, he was a... a it was an unpopular choice in a lot of ways, and there was a there was a kind of unfair media campaign against them. There's people yeah. who went to all the trouble to make a website saying something like Daniel Craig is not Bond, and I got to say at the time, I mean, with me it was more I my interest moved away to other things, and I would still watch if I watched a Bond film at that time. It was like hungover curiosity when I was a student. Um, I saw um, I wasn't I was kind of moving away from things like that at the time, and. Uh, I I didn't really. I always thought he had that sort of uh, Bond look. There's a there's a look Daniel Craig has. It's uh, I don't think I think he's the only person that kind of comes close to Connery in this way. There's there's something in his eyes. I don't know if he his his jaw. It's like Fleming's incarnation of the character in the books. It was like talked about the cruel mouth. He's that sort of look, which I don't think even like maybe Dalton had. There was something. Although I, I think at the time I was maybe a bit critical of him. And I think he had uh, his first press conference. He maybe didn't really say the right things, and a lot of people were against him. Oh, he's got he's got blonde hair and all that. He doesn't have the right sort of hair, you know. I I always thought he had that. I think because I saw him in Lear Cake round about two thousand five, um, I started to buy into him a bit more. But it's weird, Daniel Craig though. Is I mean, I've now I've actually really bought into him as Bond. It's he's got a big kind of. Just just find he's got he's got a sort of big circular head it's like there's something about his head is kind of funny he's like a big sort of football head I thought there's something he's different looking about him but he's get but facially he's got that sort of like Connery-esque this 
when you saw Connery is sort of brutal, um, the brutal side to him in the earlier Bond films, like in Doctor No, the scene with um, the girl that ends up sort of calling Professor Denton to shoot him, who who's the secretary? Oh, sorry, I'm rambling a bit. Um, he the way he, there's a bit he looks at her and it's like you don't know if he if he's about to kill her, if he's about to kiss her. You know, it's it's. There was a sense of that sort of thing I, I started to find with Craig. You know, it was taking us back to the, the Connery days in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is a hardness that Daniel Craig sort of projects, which is obviously what his main... That's the bond that he's portrayed. And even a lot of people would say that even harder than Sean Connery. Um, more like maybe the Dalt, Dalton version. Well, you know what's really interesting, actually, is... One of my uncles looks like Robert Carlyle, and the other one looks like da- uh, Daniel Craig. I have seen, I have seen your uncle looks. He does look like Robert Carlyle. Actually, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like I'm surrounded by Bond characters <laughs> in a way. Because do you not think this with Robert Carlyle? Uh, this might come across the wrong way. I, I've always thought not nothing against your uncle, by the way. That Robert Carlyle's got sort of. Do you not think he's got a real sort of like circular, very circular head? It's like football or something. It's like a. Daniel Craig's got that as well. It's, it's, he's got a sort of strange-shaped head. I've always like, that is such a strange talent of being able to identify people with spherical heads. It's I've never like, met anybody who's able to do that before. He's almost got a perfectly circular head. It's like certain people, a lot of people in life remind me of different types of animals. There's people I go to school with, like there was some, there'd be a certain person who reminds you of a cat or a certain person who reminds you of a dog or something like that. This is so interesting. I've I've never I've I've never kind of saw people as that before, but I can kind of see. But I suppose people do those quizzes, don't they? Where you you see what you are, don't you? Like how much am I like this? Have you ever done those quizzes before? Guys? I usually like speed ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah how circular is my head? <laughs> but, but, yeah. I mean, Bond Bond was meant to be an animal <laughs> always, I suppose. You gotta be an animal if you're gonna be born. I swear to God, we are going mad. I think. I think. (laughs) I'm trying to find a good segue for this back to the film, but But I'm struggling. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, I love this. Like, I'm gonna. I I already know that I'm gonna love listening back to this. I just know it. I'm I'm gonna have to keep it in then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, Fran, you were a segment um, on the shapes of stars' heads. Sometime, I think we should do that. yeah, I mean, you, there's some people who've got heads that are like, um, they're like ulnut or something like that. No, we don't all look the same. But, but like I said, it's all <laughs> about the look. Away. That's takeaway from today. <laughs> it's all about the look. We don't all look the same. <laughs> I know. Uh, good stuff. Love it. Daniel Craig's uh, got something. He's really got it. Like, like I said, I mean, being a bit more serious, he's got that sort of look. And with Bond, that's just a very important thing. No, I do agree. I do agree. I'm looking forward to seeing this uh, this version. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating. Um, okay, very quickly then. Uh, Stuart Baird, Fran, you were, you were about to mention is the is the editor of this film. He is there's a Star Trek connection. He was an uh, editor and director for Star Trek Nemesis, which we actually really liked. Although that film was seen as the one of the weaker Star Trek films. Um, well, it's, it's been... Uh, people have now been doing retrospective reviews and have seen how cinema's actually moved. I think Stuart Baird was a little bit ahead of his time there. And you yeah. can see how he's gone on because this is obviously four years later that he's gone yeah. on to be involved with this. Uh, and it's again, it's 
it, it, you know, there's a there's a certain more modern feel to Casino Royale that I think Nemesis was just a little bit too early, a yeah. few years too early for folk to appreciate it. And lastly, uh, the film, obviously, the budget was $150 million. It made a massive $616.1 million over, I think, the course of its time. Um, it's got different there was successes from the UK, the US, and internationally, uh, everywhere else, as well as then on re-releasing on the DVD and things like that. But it was the most successful, again, each each film really was the most successful at that time, and it was beaten by Skyfall, so two films later, uh, budget-wise. Right, we're going to end it. Gordon, I know um, we should probably spend just a, one more minute then, at least on Arrow Cameron, Bond alumni that passed away. Yeah, yeah the... the um, I, I just noticed it late, late at night. Um, the guy who played, um, what's his name, Pinder in Thunderbolt, Arrow Cameron... At the age of 102. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I know. And just, I, I noticed the article on BBC News and right away, it's funny because he didn't have a, a particularly big role in Thunderball, but he's actually aged really well because as soon as I saw his face, I couldn't remember the actor's name. And as soon as I saw saw his face, I thought he he actually is aged really I know exactly who he is and who he played because... You know, he's actually aged really well. And he's one of these minor characters. He worked for MI6. Wasn't he some kind of pioneer for black actors at the time or something like that? Yeah. He had one of the first ever uh, black starring roles back in the 1950s. Yeah, so he he led the way for a lot of of black actors. There's a lot of them today, or yesterday and today, talking about how they wouldn't be where they are today if it weren't for him. So, yeah, in film in general... He was a, a massive sort of figure. What's quite interesting is that, um, you know, the 60s wasn't very, you know, if you look at when, you know, your silent movies at the start of the century and then you started to get, you know, you probably had about, what, 20 or 30 years of black actors playing very kind of, you know, standard roles where they would be house servants and things like that, wouldn't they? There would there'd be a lot of that. And then obviously the 60s must have been the time that it started to branch out into other things. In fact, yeah. 12 Angry Men's yeah. interesting in that I think, I'll have to remember this, but I think the guy that was on trial was a black guy. You didn't see him much in the film, but that was a big part of what the, the jury were debating was um, there was some members of the jury who were assuming that he was guilty, you know, because he was because it was a black guy. But yeah, you know, the late 50s into the 60s, I think. I was just going to say, he almost played Quarrel, apparently, and John Kitzmiller beat him to it. And he's one of the... He had a few lines with with Bond and the the Q branch scenes, and I think he's maybe the first contact from MI six that meets Bond and Nasso. And there was something intriguing about him. It's like a it's like for example Henderson out of You Only Live Twice. He's one of these characters you you kind of wish he had a bit more screen time because there was something endearing about him. I think it was maybe also the sense that Bond not only had Felix Leiter, but it was like Felix Leiter's pal as well. It's just you wish the three of them could all sneak in with with their guns stealthily into Largo's mansion or something like that. There was just uh, it's one I uh, one of these small role characters that um you would at least maybe like to see him appear in, in, in later films as well. Actually see on the topic of um you know black actors, uh, Felix Leiter is now played by a black actor in Casino Royale for the yeah. first time. And you know what's interesting about it is that there was 
you know, there was no controversy about that, as far as I'm aware. There was far more controversy about Daniel Craig. I mean, nobody had any problem with believing that Felix, you know, and Anniver did it. In fact, I didn't even think about it at the time uh, until I went and watched some older Bond films and I remembered, oh, Felix Leiter used to, you know, he was played by another actor in the past. But um, the guy, the actor playing Felix Leiter, again, can't recall his name, but he's, I've seen that he's obviously been in lots of different things. Great actor. Um, and, it must be uh, Jeffrey Wright. Are you be talking about um, starting Casino Royale? Jeffrey Wright, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, um, so he's, you know, excellent to be, you know, it's, he's a great choice for Felix Leiter. Excellent choice. In fact, I think generally the cast, I'm looking forward to seeing all the different cast members again. Like, I'm generally just looking forward to seeing the film. Let's go and watch it then. I'm excited to see it as well. Um, so, yeah, we are now going to go and watch Casino Royale and come back and go into spoilerific detail on our thoughts. Bye-bye. And we are back from having watched Casino Royale. I love that, i got to say. Uh, where do we all sit with this film? Um, are we aligned? What, what's our thoughts? Gordon, for the first time, let's start with you. Uh, um, well, <laughs> um, you know how much I love Bond, Steve. Um, you know how much I love Bond and this podcast and how I've, I've never been so much into the reboot idea. I'm really disappointed with this film, I gotta say. Oh wow. I really I really long to go back to the sort of you to kill format. Octopus it just didn't do it for me. Daniel Craig, I, nah. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're gonna have to really disagree in this one. There we go. This is gonna be interesting. Uh so we'll go we'll go we'll go into that further. Uh Steve oh, will come oh, to oh, you. Hold next. on a minute, hold on a minute, hold on. Alright. Steve, no. I really enjoyed this film. Oh, right, okay. Well, you had me on there. That was genuine. <laughs> <laughs> I just testing it. I really enjoyed this film. The back-to-basics feel, it was necessary after dying another day. It, it, it really worked. I thought um, I thought Daniel Craig was great. I, I really enjoyed Le Chiffre's performance. I think the, the, one of the biggest things is just to take this 1950s novel and to bring it into the 21st century world, to flesh it out, because like I said, for, I've not read the whole novel, but from what I can gather, it was, you know, largely based in a casino. To, to bring it up to date, the cast, I thought, so well cast, Eva Green, brought, brought into the film quite late, the chemistry between her and Daniel Craig, the there's just, there's something incredibly atmospheric about Casino Royale, and and it's maybe the only other film that I can maybe liken it to in that way is, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, there's this there's this atmosphere, especially the casino scenes. It's, it's very colourful, and it's one of the with Bond films that tends to be some of them. The, the more I watch them, the more um, some of them I like them more with each viewing. Some of them go down my estimation a bit. Some of them I'm not too sure what what to think of. But yeah, great music. Yeah, it just it, it just worked really well, and you know, lack of CGI as well. For you know, not more bad CGI anyway. I mean, the only it was uh, there was nothing. You think about dying another day. That's one of the the. I think maybe because I mean, this is the maybe I've only seen Casino about six times or something, and I think um, this is my most enjoyable viewing of it yet. Long film. I think maybe because it's coming in the back of dying another day, I'm getting that bigger appreciation from it. It's it's hard to fault this film. 
It really is. It's hard to find faults with it. Yeah. Yep. Okay, then. This time we'll come to Steve. You know what? I'm actually genuinely, genuinely struggling with this one. It's it's so weird having watched... Is this, what, film number 21? Yeah. So I've effectively watched 20 films in what was, I think we can probably describe as the old style, if you like. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we've got this... I don't even know if I can call it a soft reboot. It was a full-on reboot. Everything's different. It's kind of they've taken it right back to ground zero and started again. And yep. it's absolutely messed with me. But, I mean, it's a film. I really enjoyed it. Genuinely, it was as a sort of solid action film, which this was. This wasn't your tradition. This felt a, a hell of a lot more like a sort of modern-day action film than your traditional Bond film, far more than any other film has so far, which is understandable with the sort of the time it was out, the films around it, etc. But having to effectively go right back to the start and start again, it's kind of difficult. It's kind of resetting my brain and everything that I've considered normal for the last 20 films now isn't. But it was interesting watching it go back to the start and to give it its dues, it did it, I think, exceptionally well. Going right back to before Bond was even a double A, discovering how he became a double A, discovering that to become a double a double A, a double O, he's not a battery. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm looking at some batteries. <laughs> they did have some weird uh, ideas going into this film, you know, double A battery. Should we do that? Maybe not. I particularly like the triple X. That's taking the product things. placement too far, isn't it? I mean, like, where Bond actually becomes a battery, you know? <laughs> it becomes a Duracell all of a sudden, yeah. Um, but I discovered that to become a double O, you need to have killed two people. I didn't know that. I don't know if that ever came up in any of the other films or if I just hadn't noticed. But that was a, a nice little sort of proper background touch. The way cinematically it started off as well, going from black and white into that incredible title sequence, which we'll come to, I assume. And then the way it worked, there was no, it wasn't really, there was no date stamp, if you like, on this film. So it was difficult to establish when this was. So this could quite easily, obviously there were modern touches in the film, but it could quite easily have gone right back to the very start. But it was I, I genuinely enjoyed it. The characters were fantastic. Daniel Craig, I think I'm I think I'm I think I'm gonna grow to like a very different bond. He feels a lot more he feels closer to the Dalton bond, which I really liked. He's not particularly humorous, he's particularly cold blooded and psychopathic at parts. That torture scene where he started laughing and you thought he is just willing to let um, his female companion die in order to maintain the information that would give the bad guys the money. You could see that sort of cold-hearted bastard in him. <clears throat> and I thought, yeah, I think I'm going to like this. Um, so there were there were elements that were a bit odd. I mean, Bond time to effectively resuscitate himself in the defibrillator. I was starting to think, hang on, this is they're starting to eat this out a bit much. What more can happen to him? But uh, yeah, for the most part, it's an it's an absolute head mess. It was an enjoyable film, but it's absolutely messed with me completely. I think I'm going to have to kind of go back to the start and kind of straighten this one out in my own head before I uh, can even consider dissecting it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fran, what about yourself? Yeah, so I, I guess I'm a little bit more used to this. It's weird because I'm kind of in the middle between Gordon and Steve's perspectives because Gordon is the Bond super fan. Steve's very much kind of watching 
a lot of these, you know, for the first time or in such for the first time after such a long period of time that Casino Royale is quite fresh. Um, I've got quite strong memories of going to see this film the first time. I really, uh, so I'm quite used to it, but I, I have to say, I think, you know, it really is a contender for Honor Majesties with me for the best Bond film. I really think that it is almost, in, in a lot of ways, the perfect Bond movie. If, you know what I mean? Like it, it addresses, for me, it addresses almost every single criticism I ever had of James Bond up to this point. Because you know, and they do it so cl- cleverly through the writing as well. Um, the I mean, you can see Stuart Baird's editing skills as well uh, throughout the movie. Um, it is, you know, musically, visually, um, uh, in terms of the acting talent, in terms of the pacing, in terms of the the use of uh, modern cinema techniques, small uses of CGI, um, just you know everything it really is it's not even just i wouldn't even say it's like five it's almost like 10 out of 10 do you know what i mean i know those effectively it's the same as five out of five but you know it's it's even in the small details uh, you know it's not like a a, a fight a 4.7 or whatever like i really think this film had everything and it addressed everything I mean, I, I I kind of feel like they must have sat down and gone through all the Bond films and said, well, what what was wrong there? What was wrong here? You know, it's so interesting as well because obviously I've kind of maybe been slightly irritable about the idea of Bond films having to be Bondy, you know, using the Bond music and things like that. But I think it really, in this film, I found myself, you know, whenever the Bond theme would come on, it was so perfect. That I was that I was responding to that. I was I was thinking this sounds great, especially the points where it would go from the Bond theme to the um, Casino Royale theme itself. Again, the title sequence, it, you know, it was so arty and so almost nineteen sixties style the way it looked. I, I could go on. I could I could just go on and on and on about this film. I mean, honestly, I think I made a comment in the group chat about it being a character study of a character that we thought we knew. Um, it really uh, absolutely fantastic basically yes I, uh, I pretty much agree with that um, I got so much enjoyment revisiting this film and it's now probably sitting top of my Daniel Craig films I think I've only seen Skyfall once and that was the one I, I considered as, as my favourite of his but this film there is a vision there and that vision is executed perfectly and the people that involved, you can see where, like you mentioned, Stuart Baird's editing style, definitely, I agree. Martin Campbell's a director, I think. I really, I, I love his directorial fl- flourishes. The beginning sequence, black and white, there's a noir feel to this film. Like, actually, um, there was a couple of moments, not even just, the, the black and white gives that away. The sort of spy um, feel. But later on, even in M's apart, um, house, when Bond snuck in, there was again the, the way that the the camera is sat. There's just an element of you, you don't really know. You can't really trust anyone in this film, and that's one of the themes of the film. Um, as well as that, Craig, what a fantastic way to start your your Bond career. Um, he really, I think he embodies the the modern interpretation of Bond, as well as was able to to kind of capture a lot of what Fleming probably wrote. I don't think he wrote him so, as such a, a sort of buff character, but I think that's a, that's the modern element of it. 
that I like. But he has this, he has the stone cold killer look, which is definitely one of the things I really appreciate of it. I was just going to say it's interesting because you were talking about, uh, you know, the, you were kind of talking about the, you know, you mentioned Skyfall there, and it's interesting because. I mean, Skyfall is incredible, but it's just, it, it really struck me from watching this again. There's a, a particular magic in this film that I don't think even any of Craig's future films quite touched. It's, it, you know, and it's an understated magic. It's the, it, it, I really love the fact that there's not big oil pipelines blowing up or huge helicopter things or, you know, it's, it's, it's a personal film. Yeah. That's what it is. They've recognised where they went wrong with the over-commercialisation, the over-fantastical CG stuff, the overly silly plots, the overly silly characters and dialogue, and they've stripped it all out and then focused, which is what we have said in the preamble, but they did, they executed it. It's a long film, and at times can feel a little slightly longer than maybe it needed to be, but then you think if you'd taken some of it out, it might have ruined some of the character moments and beats because there's a lot going on. There is different sections of this film where I'd forgotten even revisiting it. <laughs> um, so it's, it's so enjoyable and a perfect setup for what Craig's Bond will become. Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's dissect this one then. So we've mentioned the pre-titles uh, briefly. Let's just go into that a little more detail then. What We all, we all like this then black and white aesthetic and they've obviously ditched the whole idea of a sort of slow revealing of bonds which was the the classic thing they've obviously just gone right you know what enough of the crap let's just get straight to it because you see him instantly but the way i think rather than going for that slow reveal the way he's lit it's almost like he's in a corner a dark corner and there's a spotlight almost on his on his face on the top of his head which as your sort of first sight of Bond, I think was quite cleverly done. You're absolutely right about that whole noir, almost 1950s feel to it, which I think is supposed to kind of uh, subtly tell you that it's taking you right back to prehistoric Bond almost, <clears throat> um, almost sort of taking you back to the 1950s. So the way that was done, that kind of black and white style, the way you first saw Bond. Uh, I mean, the, the story as well, the fact it was a what bent... Um, section chief that he kills and that's how he becomes a double O. I love that. I was gripped. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I think cinematography was fantastic here. Um, a real craftsmanship all round. Um, I loved I loved the creative use of the into the song. It's like we actually see the, hen- the person that's being shot from their perspective when it does the uh, which is quite a clever technique. Um, yeah. Yes, I love yeah. the gun barrel, yeah. Yeah, the gun barrel. That was quite different, again. I was happy enough. I mean, I was happy enough for them to ditch the gun barrel with the, the idea of rebooting the series. I was fine. Well, they did have the gun barrel, but not in the traditional sense. Yeah. And I don't know if you can still hear me. It says poor connection. But I, I thought, yeah, Steve, yeah, you're right. The The visuals are fantastic in that opening sequence. The black and white worked really well. One slight thing I would say is I think, although it worked great, I think it would have worked even better if you had a slow reveal. If you heard um, if you heard Craig talking and you had that same sort of black and white, just maybe showed bits of him the way we've seen in previous Bonds. And then when he shoots the section chief and he says, 
Yes, considerably. If that had been the reveal right there, when you just saw his face, you saw bits of his body and then you see his face and you see the gun, but that would have been beautiful, I think. So they were almost there, I think, but yeah, really, I agree. I can kind of see what Steve was saying about it, though. It's almost like that's been done. This is different. Also, it's like it's like the whole point of this film is he isn't quite the finished article yet. He isn't James Bond as we know him yet. And that's where he gets to at the end. I, I quite like that. It was almost a shock itself, just him in the corner. Um, it felt like a, it felt like a, it felt like a one of those fifth kind of old fifties spy films. The style of it, which I, I appreciated. Yeah, I agree yeah. with what um, you said about the things your friend said about the title sequence as well. The old kind of sixties feel it was different and a very different song, but that really kind of sucked me in at that point, and that got me into that um, kind of almost claustrophobic casino feel, which lasted a long time. Yeah, the titles were great. Yeah, they didn't they didn't make the pre-titles over long as well, which might have worked against it. it was the right length. No, definitely. Again, that was what was it? The world is not enough. And Dino Day were really long. Yeah, yeah, snappy. And it was, yeah, and it was. And and I think as well, the the fight with the the ally of of Dresden. That is, I mean, that's maybe the most brutal and um, and violent bond scene we've seen since maybe License to Kill, or maybe even even more so than that. Drowning a guy in a a little sink. And they're just such a brutal fight. You know, maybe like one or two of the the earlier ones pre-Moore. That, that is a scene that, you know, that lives along the name of it. Yeah, definitely. A brutal, brutal bond right from the off. A statement of intent. This whole film was, was a statement of intent. But that, I think that it started yeah. with the title sequence. The fact that they've ditched the, the dancing woman and replaced it with um, sort of other visuals again felt a lot like a statement of intent because everyone who's gone who'll have gone to see this film for the first time when it came out will have been expecting what they've seen for the last 19 films the dancing woman over the title sequence or whatever and it's i mean it's a subtle change but it's a change all the same and i think that sets out that almost sets out the tone of this entire film and sort of the various things treatment towards women that we've discussed before and I think um, the use of the the poker aesthetic in the title sequence obviously fitting for this film. But I think it was I don't know if you mentioned it, Gordon. It was the that was the original style of the cover for the original novel. Um, so obviously ties back again into Fleming's original novel. Um, and obviously let's talk about the actual song then, Chris Cornell. Um, again, an edgier, rockier song than we've had. Well, even since uh, you know living like that is probably the closest isn't it but this was still a, heavy, a lot rockier i'd say and the lyrics totally, i love this song sorry yeah um totally with you in that steve the the lyrics <laughs> is a statement of what bond's all about almost throughout i mean you're going from from madonna who barely even makes any reference to bond's world this is feels all about bond's world do it's lyrics on the lines of don't come too close you know my name that's kind of what the the dark bond from the books was all about so they they i mean they composed that really well i mean i think i think carnell um whether he wrote it solely or he collaborated with someone you know he was very much but he wasn't just a performer like some of the earlier you know singers were he was you know very much involved in the writing of the song and it wasn't a throwaway song that maybe 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 madonna's was 
that it's something she'd maybe already written. It was, I mean, Cornell actually, I heard that he he um, took a real interest in the Bond franchise and in the books, and he studied it to make sure that he was getting a grip of Bond's internal character in his head. He was he was completely honing that into into the the song itself. And you you know, I really as a you know big fan of the the franchise, that's something I really appreciate from the artist. Yeah, that I didn't really realize that, that you could see that. That's that's great. The fact that the the song was used, like Fran, you've mentioned this before, and how the score uses the theme as a motif. Would they don't do it often enough? This film, you could hear it at subtle points. I really appreciated that. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. I really, you know, honestly, uh, soundtrack wise, I really feel like it was. You know, I have, and again, actually, I could say this about the entire the entire film. I really. I feel like I'm grasping at straws to criticise this. I don't really know what I would complain about. I watched the entire thing with full contentment from start to finish. Yeah. In every way. Yeah, I think David Arnold really nailed it with the, the score. Um, he's really coming into his own. Um, he's uh, After John Barry, You just I just always assumed it was John Barry for some reason the whole time. But obviously David Arnold really has taken what Barry did and... And, and ran with it and it's kind of modernized it and this one there's a there's a classic feel to it again it feels almost stripped back as well enough he's kind of it's like he's ditched some of the techno stuff from the world's not enough and die another day soundtracks yeah. and he's got a, a you're right steve it's more of a classic feel i, re- I really really like the score yep very fitting um right okay so let's do you want to go into more about Daniel Craig as Bond. Then, uh, how how what's your overall impressions? He obviously tough. Uh, he is given a lot in this film. You know, we see different sides of his of Bond's personality, uh, which I think we a lot of stuff we hadn't seen before. There was Steve. You mentioned it in your first summary that when he's getting tortured, there's almost like a psychotic element that comes out in him. Like he, it was quite a sadistic side, which we haven't seen. Um, I appreciated that as well as the fact that he can fall in love. I know we've seen that with on her majesties certainly, so that isn't completely original. But it was in- interesting to see this this incarnation of Bond. Well, this felt like a reboot starting from on her majesty's secret service. That I think I know. I think that my phone might have cut out at this point, but then both of you referenced on her majesties as you sort of started some of the film up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's. I think that's, that's the closest classic film you can get to this film. Um, obviously, mostly in the way it ends. But um, yeah, in terms of Daniel Craig, definitely the sort of coldest, hardest that we've seen since Dalton. And he, he pulls it off incredibly. Um, I mean, he's convincing, which is interesting because I mean, I'm looking at my notes and I've, I've written down that had it not been for the pre-title sequence, you would not have known that Daniel Craig was born, particularly in that first sort of opening scene after the the title scenes. It doesn't sort of aesthetically you wouldn't be able to tell because it doesn't look anything like what we're used to seeing Bond looking like, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um it kind of grows, but I suppose that's that's the whole point of the film. We he's supposed to grow into the character that we know now and you get that as you're watching it. But from the start mm-hmm. you're looking going, this is Bond? Really? He's acting like it. You've obviously 
you see him jumping about, doing parkour and blowing stuff up and acting cool when his partner is obviously making an absolute hash of things. But yeah, it's watching him grow into the character of Bond over two hours and 40 minutes or whatever that was, was fascinating. A character study, as Fran, I think, pointed out, is the best way of putting it, I think. Yep. Um, so I've obviously read the book. Um, the The first third of the film don't really... I mean, I didn't recognise anything from the book. Essentially, the book's... It's almost like the book part starts once the... The Chifra and, and the actual poker game starts. That's kind of where you can recognize a lot of the plot elements, Vesper and things like that. The stuff in Madagascar, what do we think of that then? The the crane action sequence and parkour, as you mentioned, Steve? The crane reminded me of Goldeneye quite a lot. The, what I had in my head was the final chase scene from Goldeneye as we're scrambling up, which I quite liked. I don't know if that was meant to be a kind of subtle reference, but I quite liked it. Yeah, I, I, I think. Oh, sorry, yeah, I was just going to say it was original. Bond chasing an enemy up a crane and when I first saw that the first thing I saw the film I thought this is way over the top but on, on repeated viewings that's the sort of these uh, these nasty terrorists are willing to take risks and Bond's in the sort of job where he'd be expected to run after him probably up that crane and you, you know so actually now I have quite an appreciation for that and the you know great stunt work you know we're not although we're in the 21st century we're not eliminating the you know, the heroics of the, the old school stuntmen, you know, that, I mean, that's amazing. It's, you know, it's well, well, so well shot. It's colourful. And, and it's the fact, again, uh, Bond, he makes split-second decisions. It's like the Bond from the books, you know, he's in, he's, uh, for example, the Bond's on the actual hoist of the crane. And I think the, 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 the terrorist is kind of right up the top of the crane to get up. I think he, he does something to drop the load from the hoist and makes him spring up. It's like that's the that's the classic Bond touch. He makes a split-second decision to to catch up with his enemy. And, you know, yeah, I really like And it went on so long, you know, and then it's more, I know, again, getting back into the classic Bond world, jumping over rooftops. No, that was where, that was a scene where they really, they really could have, messed up with the CGI, but they, they did it really well. They must have hit at the back of their minds what um what sort of reputation Die Another Day got a few years earlier with the CGI. So they did they made that they made that more realistic and you know, again more brutal fighting. Yeah. Yeah. There was um some of the, the Mads cap action was fantastic. Um we don't know who the stuntman was that the uh that doubled for I don't know maybe it wasn't doubled for the for the guy that was it was running away from in Madagascar but it, it reminded me of I mean this is more of a comedy but Jackie Chan's stuff the sort of crazy stunts but you knew it was actually being done for real um you know jumping in between tight spaces diving across buildings um you know it was just frantic in the film the actual hand to hand combat as well which yeah. I, again had that slight Jackie Chan feel, but right at the top of the crane was was really tense. Yeah. Um, but that it's interesting. I think in a in a previous classic Bond film, an action scene that had gone on that long would have been boring. But I don't know if it was the modern cinematography or the accompanying soundtrack, but it didn't feel long. It was, but I I, I wasn't bored at any point. I was gripped. I can't quite put my finger on why that was because any other film I think I would have gone oh god this has gone on too long just move on to the next bit yeah 
No, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, fun. Uh, I think maybe it was, that's to do with the pacing. I don't know if it's just the perfectly paced when the action should finish. The different types of action as well. Um, we don't quite see any of that sort of the parkour craziness again later on. It's more, you know, a defibrillator sequ- sequence is, is, the ne- is one of the f- most thrilling moments in the film. Um, and it's a different type of intensity, really. Um, but yeah. I had a couple of GoldenEye vibes as well. There was the moment when there's a standoff with Bond um, and then it's like all the guys pointing their guns at him. It just felt like the beginning of the, the GoldenEye section. I don't know if you feel that way, Gordon, uh, in the facility. Oh, yeah. I did. Yeah, that was quite a tense moment when they've got gun, Bond at gunpoint. And again, it's Bond making a just like he does when he shoots the, the gas tanks down in the facility in Goldeneye, he makes a split-second decision to shoot what I think essentially is a gas tank cause a big explosion. You know, that's, again, it's classic Bond. You know, it's there's so many moments of that in this film. And I like as well how Bond's kind of in the bad books with him after all that. And do you feel, seeing the Daniel Craig films in the whole, he, he doesn't really get along well with them. It's not just with uh, the Judy Dench's him. Ralph Fiennes as well, when he takes over the role. Bond always seems to do something to piss off his superiors. He did, I suppose he did that in a lot of the earlier films. But I was about to say, that is one that established relationship. That's established relationship, really, isn't it? I think I would be a little unnerved if they were all like, Hi, Bond. Hi, Em. How are you doing? I'm just good. Well, it's maybe, maybe more I'm trying to say is early on in this film, Em actually seems furious with him. And there's maybe not that many moments that Em actually is, he's, he's maybe angry with Bond at times. Well, I say he because it was, we're talking mainly the Robert Browner. Or uh, or Bernard Lee's M up till Goldeneye, but M was you. He was sometimes angry, or she was angry at Bond, but never really that furious too often. But she was yeah. proper furious with him after that. I think it, it highlights. Obviously, he's a rookie at this point, so it's probably to establish the the relationship there that um, he has not the finished article, and she's making him aware of that. And, you know, he's still got a lot of growing to do. Um, yeah. I did, I did like, I liked Judy Dench in this film. I thought she was great. But, I mean, I suppose that goes without saying, doesn't it, really? That, I think, is one of the elements that kind of, not confused me, but really kind of got me stuck with this film. Because, obviously, everything is different, except that Judy Dench is still, um, M mm. is identical to the previous, and on some occasions, terrible films that we've seen. And yet she's been kind of transported into this completely new world. And I was kind of left for a bit thinking, hang on, is, it, is this, is this, are we supposed to have moved on? Are we not supposed to have moved on? Yeah. So that was, a, it was, I mean, I, I wouldn't have batted an eyelid. It might have actually been slightly easier, slightly more palatable almost, if they had brought in a brand new M. But presumably, contractually, whatever, they probably had to bring back Judy Dench for a certain reason. And you're right, she did a fantastic job at it. She's great as M. But it was an odd crossover between these supposed two new worlds that we've now kind of both left and then entered yeah yeah i, I can see that i think they probably i don't know what the reason were i'm guessing they just really liked her um and they thought well she's still up for it but uh, yeah i can see that it does there's a wee bit of a disconnect there um when we, we have seen her dealing with pierce brosnan and to then suddenly expect us to to buy that we, she's speaking to the rookie version of bond um 
Yeah, I did like her line about the Christ, I miss the Cold War. Uh, <laughs> it's the stuff like that. It was some good stuff in this. The good dialogue was fantastic. But yeah, um, all right then. What's let's talk about villain then or villains? Uh, Lucifer, Mad Mad Mickelson. Is that yeah. Madman? He's uh, made to be a Bond villain. He look again. He it's the eyes again. It's the whole. There is the it's slightly reusing the trope of the Bond villain having to have something almost physically wrong with them. Um, also, odd touch that he had. Did he have asthma, or was he just using an inhaler for other stuff? I don't know. But that was that was an odd touch. But it was a it was a sort of suitably odd and sort of convincing villain. I really liked him. I thought he was menacing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And for someone who isn't even, you know, he's the, not the top dog of the organization that we. Um, that is subtly referenced um, you know he's still imposing and yeah memorable I would say up there as one of the, the better villains Gordon what's your thoughts on that? I thought he was fantastic yeah it's going back to a more old school Bond villain totally agree with what Steve McCall said there but yeah he's got that classic little sort of deformity or little edge with um you know he's got a slight facial disfigurement is the blood coming from the eye i mean that's fantastic i don't know if that was in the novel and because uh, it's the sort of thing that fleming would invent and i liked how he had the inhaler that he had to use every so often it just it gave him that that kind of touch he was he, i gotta say mads mickelson he did mumble his way through the film but that you know that that's down to the way the character's supposed to be, and I guess the the um, the the actor's accent. But um, yeah, I'm just looking through my notes there because I think he's kind of a he works well as well because I think he I think he's somewhat Mads Mikkelsen somewhat underplays him. He's kind of he's a quieter tone set, it's similar to like Michael Lonsdale as Drax. But I mean, on the whole, he like Steve said, he he looks like a villain. I mean, that it's like getting back to yeah Michael Lonsdale or Gert Frobe. You know, they they actually completely look like nasty villainous characters it's like just like that i really really like him in this film yeah and i think we have one of the most brutal scenes in any bond film um brutal any any film <laughs> the torture sequence when bond's balls are getting blasted as a way to put it i don't know if that's the right way to put it but uh, <laughs> absolutely horrific it's uh, that's in the book bizarrely crazily and um, that is not something they invented if you watched that and didn't know that you would think that that's where they've taken some sort of creative license and then but no that's actually a fleming that was on the page which is yeah horrendous is oh the book includes the line you'll die knowing you were tickling my balls was that the line it's great. it was a fantastic line that was it that was it yeah I'm I'm yeah. fine because I know that if you die, you'll die scratching my balls. Yeah, I don't. I can't remember. I wish I just read it recently. It was um quite a while ago, about a year ago. I read it, I think. But yeah, I I, I cannot remember if that line was specifically was in it. And yeah, he says, "I've got a bit of an itch." She's like, "No, no, to the right, to the right." Yeah. Wow. It's it's dark. I mean, a fantastically short scene. Yeah, it was. Uh, really it felt like you're watching something out of Hostel or Saw or something you know it was a horror for a moment but yeah uh, uh, yeah fantastic scene again this is a much grittier film this is far so different from your Moonraker and your uh, you know your, even the manual with the golden gun in these kind of films 
I think what intensified that torture scene particularly was hearing Vesper's screams at the same time. Mm-hmm. And what I think was particularly clever was the way they'd built her character up before that scene, because you knew that she was effectively a desk accountant. She'd made completely clear her vulnerabilities. You'd seen her kind of bent double over crying in the shower, petrified at having seen Bond kill those two guys. So you, more than I think any other character in the previous Bond films, you really, really got a sense for how sort of innocent and vulnerable she is. And knowing that she was, or knowing or thinking at least at that time that she was in the other room being tortured and hearing that, hearing that at the same time as watching Bond being tortured intensified that scene tenfold, I thought. That was an exceptionally clever piece of work. Yep, yep. Let's let's talk more then about, about Vesper, Eva Green. What's her thoughts here on her Fran? I thought she was fantastic. I thought, you know, again, going back to what I was saying about women in Bond all throughout, I mean, this was a a movie-long progression. Do you know what I mean? You got to see the introduction took a while. She clearly didn't like him, you know, or do you know what I mean? The experience they shared when Bond had to kill uh, the guy in the hall, the, sorry, the stairwell, and she was horrified by this, and the whole, you know, experience of the match and the entry, not match, the poker game and the intrigue that was going on, and then the torture, obviously that was faked. Do you know what I mean? And then finding out that she was actually working for the other side, and all this kind of thing. You know, it was just, just, uh, uh, you know, she was very much an equal to Bond on the screen. You know, she was there all the time, wasn't she? I mean, she was just great. I thought she was fantastic. You know, the and, assumption and, I got was that she was meant to be. She was always. Was she meant to be the replacement for Money Penny? Then what made me think that was the way when she got onto the train to meet Bond, and she said, "I'm look." Or what was it? He said, "You looking after the money?" And she said, "Yes, every penny." And I thought, oh, "Right, that's them establishing very subtly that link, or that's the kind of idea you're meant to get into your head at least." I think. Mm. Just I me? think. It, I think it was actually more of a. I think it was more of a kind of a knowing reference than that she was an analog for Money Penny. I think it was a little thing for the Bond fans because yeah, you know, she was a treasury agent. You know, she was someone who was there to make sure that the crown's funds were not blown. Um, which is obviously quite different to Money Penny's role as a secretary. You know. Yeah. But I, th- I think that was. I I did notice that as well. I think it was more of a. Like your Bond fans would hear that and go, ah, yeah, you know, it's a little reference kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's meant to be a replacement or anything. I don't think not a direct replacement. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. then we do get a money penny later with Craig. Oh, right. So, so yeah, it's yeah. interesting. It's an interesting little reference for sure. It's funny how Money Penny's absence worked for this film. Um, I think it might have confused things, maybe. They obviously weren't sure what to do. I mean, the book doesn't have Money Penny. It's a creation, isn't it, of the film franchise, isn't it? Money Penny. Say that so, again. Money. Do you mean? Sorry. Did you say this book, Steve, or all the Fleming like, books? Is Money Penny a feature in the books? She is in the books, but right, okay. she's a much more minor character. Uh, and uh, she's usually usually it'll re- she'll be mentioned a couple of sentences and that's it sometimes i'm sure it's even mentioned it just refers to her as m secretary miss money penny as if you wouldn't know who that was but the, the thing there as well is that bond had his own secretary who was mary goodnight who obviously became a completely different person in one of the films okay. yeah 
I like Fran's background in the casino there. Fran, the only problem is there's a guy approaching you behind with a, a silenced pistol. It looks as if it's aimed at your head. <laughs> it looks a bit like Mr. White. It does make me a bit nervous, but thankfully, I mean, he's not but moved. Is, so. is that one of your family coming in? It's, it's, prob- it's probably my mum coming because because I uh, ate the beans. Come and shoot me. <laughs> Silenced pistol style. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what what else uh, are you guys want to talk about with this film? Um, we'll see think- investor. I think just the, there was one thing I was going to say. I, I thought that when the scene when she meets Bond was really well done. The table on the the dining car and the train and the way they read it each other's minds is really well done. The dialogue's great. Um, he's saying to her, like, I think you're an only child. In fact, I think you're an orphan. And then she comes back to him with similar lines and she's like, oh, this is what you would have been like at school. And the, the looks and everything, it's, it's really well done. She's um, also the dialogue when they're getting ready in the hotel is really well done. She's um, a lot, you know, a gorgeous woman. She's got a kind of everyday feel about her as well she's not like over over exotic looking if you know what i mean she's she's right for the park the right sort of accent um maybe for like you know somebody working for the treasury and then it brings you to when it's even they're getting ready i mean i i think what a lot of people now regard as a real iconic moment in the the series is when when bond puts on the dinner jacket and that's maybe the first most obvious scene where you've got the the chords of the main bond theme and that you know that that's really well done. There's a couple of earlier bits in the film, much more subtly. Arnold uses the 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 bare bones of the Bond theme, and the, like especially when Bond arrives in Nassau on the plane, that's really good. But I found I had to sort of train my ear to to listen out for that. Maybe just because this was about my, my fifth or sixth viewing. Don't know what happened to Daniel Craig's eyebrows when he, he's looking in the mirror. Like it's like they suddenly disappeared. There must be the light or something, but. He's, uh, but he looks the part, man. I mean, you know, the dinner jacket, and and I think from that point onwards, it gets even better. Because for me, the the best the best part of the film is the final thirds when they're actually largely in the casino. Yeah, yeah, I liked the one up mission again between these two characters, Vesper and Bond. Uh, again, it's the sort of we've seen it subtly in some some of the films, but I think this was it's probably it's, the writing was served both characters really well. Um, and I liked the the sort of you think he's kind of slightly patronizing her when he's telling her what well, here's the dress you're gonna wear. I need you to do this for me. Knowing then as he walks into his room and sees the jacket that she's just you know got for him tailored and everything, you know she's on the ball even more than him. And it's this it's this the the grin as she realizes that she was right when he tries it on. I liked so there's a playfulness that she had and an intelligence that I think we haven't seen. And many of the characters, but she's because she's also been served really well with the the writing in this film. Well, that's the thing, though. I mean, what it is is it's actually showing you how two adults would actually, two sharp-minded adults would actually flirt with one another and kind of butt butt heads with each other and have that chemistry before maybe they did. Do you know what I mean? It was realistic in that way. It was two very successful people in their careers who lived, you know, Bond obviously is a risky lifestyle and she's, you know, dealing with a lot of money and they're away on this mission. And, you you know, it's it, it's not any different to like two executives going off on a, on a business trip and maybe hooking up. Do you know what I mean? It's that it's that kind of thing where, you know, you feel them out, you play the game a wee bit and, you, you know, each person's doing it to the other. It's not like she's just some... 
uh, person who Bond is puppeteering, or the other way around. You know, I thought it was I thought it was perfect actually. I thought it was, and and you know, and the fact that that she got one over on Bond as well yeah. in the end. You know, yeah. for for all of his um, training and all of his in- ability to have emotional intelligence and see what people are all about. And, and, you know, they did that on the train because they had the conversation about picking up each other's past. You know, oh, she's an orphan. Bond has, you know, got a chip on his shoulder from being a bit poorer or whatever. But, you know, it, yeah, it was great. I thought it was fantastic. It's a pattern throughout the film. She gets one up on him nearly in every way throughout the film. Or even the ending, the whole thing, she's been sort of planning as a double agent. Or just, you know, did I read that? Seeing some ways from a romance perspective, right... That is quite realistic because that's a very attractive thing. See if you're getting outsmarted and and like you know there's a certain level of extreme competence that you're detecting from from a woman and you know that can be an incredibly attractive thing to a guy. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's very believable on both counts. Do you know it's it's like it's like each uh, obviously she was hoodwinking Bond, but I'm sure to Bond it felt like he was meeting his counterpart. You know, yeah. someone that he could wander the world with, as he said in the film. I thought it was, yeah, great. It was Well, that was the that was the entire sort of Tracy feel, I think. Yeah, and I'm really yeah. glad. That's Vesper as a character. I thought was just the whole way through as a device, because obviously to establish the character of James Bond, Bond needs to have loved and lost to establish that kind of cold-hearted vengeance, as opposed to the kind of loved-up Bond that you saw up until almost there. That sort of last sequence where he was obviously with uh, with Vesper. Um, where was I? Where the fuck was I going with that? I'm not with it today. Um, basically, yeah, yeah. She was she was incredibly um, exceptionally well done. I, Fran got Fran hit the nail on the head with the writing. It's it felt so much more mature in any other film. Had Bond been introduced to any attractive woman, not just someone he'd be working with, you know, fine well the dialogue would have been corny. There'd have been. Off well, one line, you know, so there have been I, sort of yeah, remarks that, on her appearance and stuff like that, but it was it was mature and it was realistic. You have to look back just at one one film ago, <laughs> Die Another Day, that dialogue on the beach with Halle Berry. Yes, and you get good, you get a much better. If you look at the beach scene here with, I think it's Solange, the girlfriend of Demetrios. It's quite iconic when you know, obviously Daniel Craig coming out of the ocean, we all know about, but. Um, her and I think wearing a bikini, riding a horse on the beach. There's she's a very exotic looking woman. There's something very iconic about that as well. I think. But yeah, going back, to, going back to Vesper, it's her death so profound. The way that Bond was willing to give up his career, and like you said, Steve, it's apart from when he gets involved with Tracy, we never saw another moment like that in the in the history of Bond. Yeah. All right then. Uh, just looking at my notes, just to see what else I want to cover um, before we get to the rating. Um, very, uh, you know, slight bits of humour. Very subtle. It's not a lot. It isn't very. Uh, it's not a humour laden film, but that's the whole point. Um, just the when he's, is it Solange? Did you say was that that female? Um, obviously, when he's trying to impress her, he, dr- he drives around the little. <laughs> area of the, the the car park and the hotel and then drives back to the location they started in which i quite liked um it was things like that you know it's just very subtle um i've also got the uh the airport tanker chase action sequence with the bomb plot which is again we haven't touched on um quite a lot of madcap action but again still 
uh, gritty and you know uh, quite intense without sacrificing it to humor and silly kind of character like i don't know if you can imagine the moor era when these kind of things were happening it'd be like psych long glances and little one-liners and things like that none of that all gone that bomb tanker chase scene i think is what i wanted the the fire engine scene in i can't remember which film it was where he's, where he's yeah. hanging on to the end of the, the the ladder on the fire i have you to a kill yeah that's the one and it's almost sort of stupidly comic the way it was done in this film was almost how that should have been done. It's like they were correcting that almost. That was I thought that was that was gripping. That was brilliant. And the payoff for that when it established, when it turned out that it somehow I still don't understand how he did it. How he attached the bomb to the guy. I don't. At no point did I see that happen. Yeah, I missed that as well. Was that a sleight of hand? Was that something that was off screen? Did we did we all miss it? Or it I must have been a sleight of hand. Yeah, which I think is. I, th- I felt that it worked brilliantly because you weren't expecting it. You thought, oh God, everyone's going to die here. And then he doesn't. So it's, it was an off-camera sleight of hand, which I think previously might have been seen as some kind of error. But in this case, it it just it just worked. Yeah. And it's the little payoff Bond slight humor. He actually laughs at it. Like he kind of smirks once the guy blows up. You know, it, Bond's hanging over the police car in, in cuffs and he's got a little bit of humor out of the guy. Obviously realizes his mistake. Um, so yeah, uh, fantastic little touches. Uh, Bond's got a tracker implant as well. It's one of the, one of the only gadgets really in, in the film, if you can call that a gadget. Um, but yeah, this this it's just it's so different. It's so different from what we've seen before. There was barely any really gadgets at all. There's no Q scene, nothing like that. You think if you think of all the things that are where yeah, we haven't spoken about because normally we would have, you know, the Q scene where he meets and all the crazy gadgets, like things going off in the background, people flying about and all that. None of that in this film. It almost wasn't necessary. The, the gadgets all kind of estab- the gadgets in the car all kind of established themselves without needing a scene where Q comes along and explains exactly what each one is and what each one does. Yep. Yeah. Is everything it's, all right? It sound, I thought I heard it was like a scream in the background. I scream there. Maybe did one of you guys move a glass or something on the table? Got a bit worried there. Bizarre. That's weird. Oh, I, don't I, know. I don't know. Nobody, re- nobody acknowledged it. So see if, see if you've recorded it. It could be the first ever capiche paranormal event, <laughs> like a, an electronic voice phenomena has been caught on the capiche podcast. Uh, it's probably just my my shitey tablet again, haunted somehow by by weird reception problems and makes weird noises. Do you know that this in this film, this is the first time I actually ever remember raining in a Bond film. Remember when when Le Chief meets um is it oh um trying to remember his name, the the leader of the the um the African sort of resistance group um Abano. Abano. Do you ever remember do you ever remember raining in a Bond film up to that point? Hang on, it's not rained in a Bond film. Do you remember it raining? Maybe apart from that, there's a brief bit, and I'm not saying it's not raining a bond film, but more of like, wait, can you do you remember? Why, God Almighty, <laughs> have they always had perfect weather? What the fuck? Well, think about it. I mean, yeah, that's uh, right. I'm just testing your noise. I mean, because I can't, I honestly can't think of a scene where it's actually apart from there's a brief bit in 
GoldenEye when it shows you the London office room, but I don't know if it's actually raining there or if it has rains. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Interesting trivia. I'm going to go away thinking that now. That's gonna, I'm going to yeah. wake up at four in the morning and go, oh, fuck, that's when it rains. <laughs> yeah. And probably phone you all or something. But yeah, um, I, I'm terrified that you might be right. Have we watched 20 Bond films with perfect weather and not noticed? <laughs> I know he spends a lot of time places places like Jimmy and the Bahamas, but it's, it's funny that I don't, I don't actually recall it raining in a Bond film up to that point. Interesting. Um, right, okay, well, we're nearing the end. We'll get to the rating. Uh, let's tick off a couple of the last points you guys want to discuss. We haven't spoken about Mr. Uh, Matisse. Um, what's your thoughts on him? Interesting. He was, he was used as a device during the poker game. It's, it's one of the few things that did annoy me in this film. He was almost used as that kind of character that was almost being used as a narrator, kind of explaining what was going on for anyone watching who might not understand the poker game or whatever. And yeah. that, it, it took away slightly from the tension, having someone butting in and going, right, for anyone who doesn't realise, that hand means that this means that he's going to make that move, which potentially means that he could lose this amount of money. And it it could have it done without that. As a character, otherwise, it was great. I don't like how he was used during the poker game for that purpose. What I liked was that he seemed like a guy that had a lot of resources. I, I'm pretty sure um, he, you know, when, when Bond killed Obano in the stairwell it seemed as though he just left it to Mathis and he was just like don't worry I'll clean up because you see them kind of looking down from the balcony when the body's found he's just sort of grinning that I really like that that's like um it reminded me of Bond's allies in previous films like Karen Bay you know really powerful guys in their own territory they know how to deal with every every situation I, I quite liked Mathis I got that I got that sense from him in the, in the I, I re- see the, the the whole thing with that fight in the stairs. It was like somehow the Sopranos, but you know Bond was having to just um and the without warning having to deal with disposing of a body in a real kind of old school manner. And see, he seemed really kind of spooked by it. And you know, to it's just the idea of like him him having to cover up all trace of that without it being found that really gripped me. I thought for about a minute. And then he was having to like get all the blood off him. He seemed him and Vesper both seemed a bit haunted by it. Yep. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to touch on? I enjoyed or just quickly. I enjoyed Felix Lighter also in the casino. I like oh, Jeffrey Lighter. I liked the there was some. It was a very it was a very tight film in a lot of ways, and it was just the the short and sharp exchange between him and Bond. He kind of looked at Bond when he first saw him with a, a sort of professional professional manner. They weren't being too pally too early on. He, he just sort of looked the business. I thought I thought he, he worked quite well in this film. Okay, all right. Um, I think I've covered most of the things I was want to talk about. Uh, if there's anything else you guys want to talk about, you want to get to the rating? Yeah, sure. All right, then. Um okay i'll i'll go first this time this is a five-star film for me this is a fantastic way to introduce uh the reboot timeline and uh, daniel craig's version of bond i think directorially martin campbell has nailed it probably even better than goldeneye um different type of film from goldeneye there's a part of me that will always these two are going to be fighting out um 
but we'll get to that in the ranking in the ranking episodes. But as a film, uh, they nailed it, and far and away, so different from Die Another Day. It's unbelievable. It's the same franchise, um, as well as that Vesper Lind and the and the writing for her character, as well as Eva Green's performance. I think she's a fantastic addition to the film. Uh, you really buy into the the sort of the love story, um, and also the Shifra villain, fantastic. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is 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 he's a intense kind of presence on the film, um, and uh, you know I, I, that brutal torture sequence is we haven't seen anything like that. This that coupled with the defibrillator sequences, we haven't seen things like that in the franchise, and that's the twenty first film, as well as the fact that visually stunning film, musically, um, David Arnold's score and the the actual theme song all perfect so i could go on we already have we've covered it it's five stars for me fran your thoughts well can you hear me okay yeah 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 um yeah i I, basically it's one of those ones where it's like a terrible film i might not have a lot to say or rather one i was bored with and a great one you know i feel like i've already said everything i would need to say i mean i had no criticisms really about this film I loved every aspect of the movie from start to finish. I think it's, uh, you know, the following Daniel Craig films are not as good as this. You know, they might get close, but this is a fantastic, uh, well-paced, realistic, believable movie. And it's it's brilliant in every way. I'd give it five out of five stars. Yep. Gordon. Well, um, it's it's actually exceeded my expectations again. Cause I thought going into this, um, it was... It was maybe it wouldn't have been a four before, and it was maybe going to go up to a four. I'll give it four and a half because, I, like I said, I find it hard to fault it. And one thing I was been truthful about earlier on was that I I don't particularly like the idea of doing reboots, but I know why they did it, and they you've really got to admire Broccoli and Wilson for they sat down after Die Another Day, they saw what went wrong with that, they thought, right, we're going to go back to the novels, we're going to go back to basics get into the character, make Bond a bit more vulnerable. And and maybe they were maybe fortunate that they were able to use that story. And it, you know, it's true to true to the novel. Bond is I liked the moments where he's again he's like a couple of the earlier Connery films, he's acting like a detective at times. I liked when he he um he he quickly used the the he, he arrived at that hotel in Nassau and he causes the, the car to collide to divert the attention of the hotel staff to sneak into the security office. That That's so well done. There was other classic Bond touches like he was uh, he's in the, the hotel room with Solange. His first thought is to go to the phone and say, I want the best Volga, I want the best champagne. You know, it's again, it's the classic Bond that I always go on about. He's in the casino. M says you're the best player in the service. I mean, that's yeah, it's, it's just so true to the novels. Like Daniel Craig is really, really good in this, and he's never been one of my favourite ones. I take back what I said about having a bit of a football head. I, I looked at myself in the mirror there when I was in the bath. I thought I've actually got a football head, so I can't really say that. I've got I've actually got bigger ears than him. So there we go. But um, no, I, I liked him a lot in this film. He really looked the part, and uh, I, I just really enjoyed the back to basics feel. Really enjoyed Mister White with Sheaf. The torture scene was great, and again, that's getting to the roots of Bond again. Like it's nothing we've we've ever seen before. Nice twist at the at the end, and like I said, more more than anything, it's like how do you take this nineteen fifties novel and bring it into the twenty first century? Yeah, at first it maybe irked me that 
the the Kingsbond maybe wears you know sort of Hawaiian shirts and things like that and swimming trunks, but it's that's kind of how how the twenty first century double agent would be. So you know, I can I can completely buy into that. And I mean, what maybe doesn't give a five? It's it's for really you know small things. I, maybe it's just the idea that it's not got the originality because it is a reboot. So it's not a fault of the filmmakers just because that this they never got around to making this film until. 2000 and something and it like Steve McCall said earlier you know it's 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 got a very different feel this film which it can be hard to put your finger on it which um at times I feel like it could have done you don't want it to go back to the silly nature with with humor but the, you know there could be times where it might have been nice to see Bond a, a bit more sort of sardonic humor I mean Craig is more of the sort of aggressive big brute type Bond but I can't really hold that too much against the film. And lastly, that I would have liked to maybe hear a bit more of the Bond theme without overdoing, maybe bring it in like halfway into the film to give it more of that real bonding feel. But at the end, the way they did it, bring when he, they save the the most quotable Bond line for the very end, and the way they brought in the the theme at the end is is so well done. So again, I can't I can't really hold too much against the film really enjoyed it four and a half then for you yeah four and a half steve what were your thoughts i still feel like i need to lie down in a darkened room and kind of take an hour or so just to go back over this film in my head because it's i think it's because it's such a shock to the system because i've obviously the way that i'm what differs here, I think, is the way that I'm watching these films. I've obviously gone from the start, having watched very, very little of the previous ones, and gone right the way through. And suddenly I've hit this reboot, and it's absolutely thrown me. And I kind of almost still need to process it. But that aside, this is a brilliant, brilliant film. Um, and it's for that reason I think I'm going four and a half. I can't quite give it the five at the moment. I think that might change. And when I get to the end of this, it's one that, similar to Living Lit, to um, License to Kill, sorry, I might end up reevaluating. But as a film itself, I love this. I particularly loved how they established the character of James Bond. You know, starting off with him, for example, in a, a rental Ford car, and then he wins a classic Aston Martin. That establishes that. He discovers a brand new sort of martini-based drink and can't quite think of a way to name it. And then the second time around he orders it, the barman goes, do you want that shaken or stone? He goes, do I look like a give a damn or whatever? <laughs> um, he's almost kind of, he's, he's discovering, you watch him kind of discovering one-liners. He makes a comment to Vesper in the restaurant after the poker game and then kind of says to himself, that's quite a good line. As if that's him sort of saying to himself, right, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to make one-liners my thing. Um, and then there's, there's a part in the poker game as well where he comes back and says, that hand nearly killed me after he had a heart attack. And it's just, you're kind of watching him come into himself. You know, he discovers tailored dinner jackets, for example, and that's when he walks into the casino for the first time. And you can see him thinking, right, now I know how to look the parts. Um, and then obviously right at the very, very end, the final line of the film, you have the Bond, James Bond. And that's, you know, right, he's, he's, he's reached that point. And watching that journey, I think, was, was just, it was really, I thought it really, really exciting. Yeah. Um, as a film itself, the the action was fantastic. It it felt really up to date. It felt, as I said, more like a modern day action film than a classic Bond film. But the fight scenes were brilliant. It wasn't stupid. It wasn't overdone. There was just the right amount of 
explosions and kind of the combat wasn't ridiculous they weren't bringing out massive swords or anything like that it was hand-to-hand combat it was the kind of small weapons that you know bond is familiar with and uses and kind of establishes himself as having used the storyline with vespa i love i utterly utterly love the honor majesty secret service um sort of callback those links to that film the way he goes really really attached to it. it was it was kind of a downside having seen Honor Majesties because as soon as he fell in love, as soon as the, the point where he says, I love you to Vesper, you know immediately she's going to die. And I kind of felt that sense of foreboding for about 20 minutes where I thought someone was going to come along and kill her. And then it turned out she was a double agent. And then it turned out she took her own life. It was an absolute roller coaster, which I think is, um, is this film down to T. It took you up and down. So I, th- I think it might move up. The other thing I liked was a slight subtle, subtle reference to the stupid names that they've had in previous films, which I think was when they were in the car and Bond was kind of going over their legends. And he turns to her and said, and you are called uh, Mrs. Broadchest. And she kind of goes, don't be so stupid and grabs the stuff off. And that felt a bit like a kind of, what we've complained about in the past about characters having ridiculous names, that was almost them going, no, we're not having any of that. Yeah. But I this, this absolutely thrilled me. Um, so for now... It's absolutely getting a four and a half, I think, is the highest I can give it because it's a first viewing and I struggle to give something a five on a first viewing. But I think I'm going to be coming back to this film quite a lot. Um, But I mean, overall, I loved it. Great, great film. Yes, I completely agree. One thing I forgot to mention in my rating, I'll just mention it here, is I liked how this film didn't just... As much as we see beautiful women, Vesper is undeniably gorgeous and nice outfits as well as as Solange. Um, But bond himself is kind of objectified there's at least two different sequences where we see him completely topless just wearing his trunks you know looking very 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 good um and it's it's clearly for you know there's a female audience that that's for and that's that's completely that's how it should be that was fantastic i mean there's there's nothing wrong with objectification just as long as everybody gets a chance to enjoy it I mean, that's um, yeah. the thing. I mean, it, it wasn't exclusive this time. That this was a this was welcome. This was an inclusive version of doing it, and it wasn't sleazy somehow either. I mean, the thing is, like, we're not puritanical, like Protestant Christians who are who are living in the eighteen hundreds who can't do anything. You know, people like to look at each other's sexy fucking bodies. Do you know what I mean? That's the way it is, and women do and men do, and it's great. You know, I more power to it. I think it's great. Yeah, um, and also, yeah, sorry, Fran. Oh, I was just going to make one more point, actually, about the women in the film. You got the sense, actually, like, especially with Le Chiffre's women, right? You got this sense of, like, you got to see these beautiful women, but and the other guy, his wife or whatever as well, girlfriend, how dangerous this world was for these women. That they were, um, they were getting the money and the glamour and the clothes and, you know, they were beautiful and all this, but, you know, they, they, you know, they were in real danger, weren't they? It was really quite, mm-hmm. you know striking you never got to see that in the other films as much yeah and the 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 way solange is murdered and it's actually m reveal she's been tortured and murdered they find her body and again going back to what steve was saying there about you know obviously um using bond more as a sex symbol like when bond is on the floor with her um sort of cuddling up it's she's still fully clothed at this point and his shirt's like kind of open the in, in the past yeah. it would be more that the woman would start to, to take her clothes off first so that that was again in the same sort of vein as a, a change i mean but i mean overall my overriding impression is just there's something incredibly 
atmospheric about this film, and I don't know what it is. And like I said, it's it's maybe similar to something like on a Majesty's Secret Service. It's a, there's a certain magic to it, the visuals. Yep. Gorgeous film. Uh, gorgeous. I loved it. Uh, I think we'll end it there. This has been this has been a fun viewing, guys. Uh, we did expect that this film is one of the highest marks this the series gets, rightfully so. Um, we're now going into a film that I've only seen a part of. I've not seen the full film. I understand uh, this one wasn't quite a hit. This was a one of the low, lower points of the series again. So it was a high to a low quite quickly with Craig. Uh, Quantum of Solace, 2008, a film that was affected by the writer's strike, I understand. Um, so that's, we'll be able to get into that in full detail in the next podcast. Until then, the Bond Aft Project will return. Thanks, guys. Cheerio. Bye bye. Cheerio. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. test uh fran is currently at the set of casino royale that is fantastic our man on the street fran can you what can you tell us from the uh, the set report how's how's things there well it's been strange um i mean obviously i was just here to cover a, a game you know a poker match but we've had this um incident took place where one of the players actually got poisoned and tried to get out and then ended up in a, a car crash but we're getting re- we're getting reports that he's actually been potentially kidnapped as well. Oof, so we don't that's terrific. You know, we don't know if he's going to be. There was also a woman who was murdered and she was found on the beach too. <laughs> so you know, it's been a bit of a wild, wild. You know, for the poker championships, you know, it's a sports reporter doesn't usually report on this kind of stuff. You know, this is this is unprecedented, uh, Fran. Thanks. I mean, it's kind of hard to keep a, a poker face with all this going on. Oh you know? dear. Um, okay, back to the studio. <laughs> I've seen poker live on Sky Sports Six or something like that, and that kind of shit doesn't normally happen, right? No, no, it's you yeah. know, I mean, obviously, I'm off the, you know, I'm not on air right now. We're having a little break, but um, the oh, the guy I forgot, that, you, I forgot to say, Fran, we're actually on air. Sorry, you've been on air the last ten minutes. Uh, we'll have to hopefully. <laughs> the, well, it's lucky you. It's lucky you told me I'm on air because I was about to tell the guys that. When I reported to you earlier on that the woman died, you laughed. Oh yeah, that uh, <laughs> was uh, one of the people in the studio. Um, yeah, so uh, Fran, just a quick update. What's what's the situation with the poker tournament? Everything's. Uh, is there any suspect been caught yet? Well, the the player that was poisoned actually came back uh, and continued the game. Amazingly enough, I mean, what a what a constitution that guy must have to have wow. come back after being poisoned, but. He's then subsequently gone off, and I think he has actually been kidnapped now. Right. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Do you have names? You haven't uh, mentioned any names yet. Did you catch any names for these uh, characters? Well, I'm not very sure. There was a Felix Leiter. Um, but, you know, whether these are their, their real names, I'm not sure, because I heard a conversation where someone had mentioned the CIA. Oh, so. Wow. You know, it's getting, you know, I have to admit to be getting a little bit of a sweat here. I'm getting a bit nervous. Um, I think you're starting to perspire. Yeah, I mean, I think there's more going on here than meets the eye for sure. This isn't a normal poker game. (laughs) Um, I think we might have to get the political reporting team in here because this is getting a little bit, uh, 
you know, I mean, I just talk about the game. Okay, Fran, thanks. We're now going to cut to the weather. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> I, I'm also the weather person, so... <laughs> the weather uh, here is lovely. Yeah. <laughs> As Emily sending me texts now. <laughs> what, what, was she wanting, what was she wanting anyway? So funny. Well, basically, like, my sister and my mum and dad are all on this quiz thing right now, and I'm on the podcast, so Emily's kind of, like, like, yeah, she's kind of been cast adrift slightly, like, she's, like, I don't think she's interested in doing the quiz, I think she's more interested in the podcast, actually, than the quiz, because she's asked me about it before, but it's one of those things where, you know, like... You'd have to do a special episode where we watched a child's movie. Do you know what I mean? And, and then asked Emily, no. "Come on and give some commentary." You know, that would be hilarious. Child's taken license to kill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what did you think of the violence there, Emily? <laughs> what did you think of the bit where Dario spat in Bond's face? Yeah, yeah. Actually, right. Gordon, whenever you have kids in the future, they're all going to be like. James Bond aficionados like I can imagine you sending your kids to school like Halloween to dress up as like James Bond and the henchmen and stuff <laughs> <laughs> well you totally had me there Gordon <laughs> <laughs> I know I know I was like huh I, 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 it seems serious yeah have you to a kill okay interesting I felt kind of bad after I said it because I <laughs> I thought um, it just uh, yeah, yeah. hook line and sinker I'll need to leave that in as well now Come. Cut well, cutting out. I I, hear you. I'm the strong person that takes things too far. Oh, I mean, yeah, you're cutting out badly. Is everyone else cutting out? Is anyone here? I'm still here, but I'm just eating on mute. <laughs> Everybody's fucked. I don't know what's going yeah. on. So, he's finishing it off now. I put it on mute again because I'm pure mm-hmm. chomping it down. No worries. Can you hear that Gordon sound? Everybody's free. Where has everybody gone? What the hell is that? Can you see me dance about me? Is that coming up? (laughs) What? I know you can. I know you. Um, it's, it seems as though you can't hear me, but I mean, I'm just to test. I'm running around the room naked, so I'm <laughs> hoping that you might. I mean, you won't notice that, obviously, just why I did it, which is it's actually completely pointless talking to myself right now. So I think I'll reboot the computer, try again.